what do serial killers have in common? Besides the whole penchant for murder bit. From the Zodiac Killer, to the Golden State Killer, to the Boston Strangler and beyond. I'll answer it for you. They are, at their core, malignant narcissists. And I don't mean narcissists the way empaths think everyone who isn't an empath is a narcissist. Newsflash, you cannot be an empath and also not be a narcissist simultaneously. I know, humans are complex creatures. So complex that some humans can be narcissistic psychopaths or sociopaths who kill for the thrill and want nothing more than to get famous for it. One such narcissistic psychopath even went so far as to write his own autobiography with a redemption arc just to make sure the world got it right and knew every gory detail right from the murderous horse's mouth. That man was Mr. Ed Edwards. Horse's mouth. Mr. Ed. Get it? That was a joke about a TV show from literally 500 years ago. Okay, maybe the name Ed Edwards can't help but inspire silly jokes, but there is nothing funny about the man or the crimes he committed. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who might say I'm going to kill you to someone who messes up my video game progress or drinks the last glass of wine in the bottle, but would I actually kill someone? No, I wouldn't. Ever. Edward Edwards, on the other hand, most definitely would. And did. Some people have a rough start in life. Edward Wayne Edwards had a start so rough that if someone wrote it in a novel, no one would buy it. Like, over-the-top bad. Edwards was born Charles Murray to a single mother in Akron, Ohio in 1933. When he was just a year old, his mother was sentenced to one to seven years for grand larceny. And we don't know all the details because we're getting this information from Edwards' own biography, Metamorphosis of a Criminal. And Lord knows, people like to bend the truth when they're telling their own story. Anyway, I don't know where Edwards went while his mom was in prison, but back in the 30s, people used orphanages like glorified daycares. No judgment. It was super hard to be alive in general back then. So he was probably in an orphanage. His mom was released a year later, which is the only good thing that will probably happen in this entire story. But, Edwards says... She needed someone to care about her, someone who'd not judge her for the impetuous love affair which resulted in my birth. That someone never came. In a bungled attempt to shake her family into recognizing her needs, she got a rifle and shot herself in the stomach. This is bold. Like, bro, you were a toddler when your mom killed herself. You really want to go around psychoanalyzing her? And your conclusion is... She just wanted attention? (sighs) After his mother's death, Edwards was adopted by Mary Ethel and Fred Edwards. And I can understand why they changed his last name to Edwards, but did they really need to change his first name from Charles to Edward? That's just mean. 
Edward's stint with his adopted parents lasted just five years, when his adopted mother was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and his adopted father's drinking was getting out of hand. So Edwards was dumped at another orphanage, this time a Catholic one, where, according to his autobiography, he was abused by both the other boys and the nuns until he was kicked out in 1945 when he was 12 or 13 years old for his, quote, uncontrollable behavior. He went to live with his grandma. Where she was back when his mother killed herself, who knows? Come to think of it, I don't know if this was his biological or adopted grandmother. She sent him to public school, where apparently he spent all his time plotting and scheming how to become a crook because, he said, that was the only way I'd get recognition. He did get recognition, but clearly not the kind he was hoping for when he ended up getting sent to reform school. Though, what the hell other kind of recognition he expected to get for being a crook is anyone's guess. Like, was he hoping to go to prison? In a psychological evaluation included in his own book, doctors noted that Edwards displayed a few alarming behaviors around the age of 13. He apparently stole a bike and would, quote, not tell the truth even when the truth would be an advantage to him. He'd also been accused of molesting girls on their way home from school. Though, to be clear, I think they meant molesting as in harassing, not molesting as in molesting. He was also apparently an outcast. A few years later, in 1948, when he was 16, he was diagnosed as a sadomasochist, someone who gets off on physical pain, which is no longer a real diagnosis, and considering how they came to this diagnosis, possibly not even a real diagnosis then. Edwards was administered a Sanzi test, which was sort of like a Rorschach test, but instead of ink blots, the test subject was shown photographs of actual people, and the subject's response to the photographs determined whether they were mentally ill or not. Listen, we don't have time to get into just how incredibly fucked up this test was. Suffice to say that according to Edmundo Oliveira's book Criminology and Criminal Policy Movements, all the people in the photographs, quote, had been classified as homosexual, a sadist, an epileptic, an hysteric, a catatonic, a paranoid, a depressive, and a maniac, end quote. Okay? Okay. Thankfully, this test is no longer used and has been rated one of the top five most discredited psychological tests by the psychological community. So, according to this super-awful test, Edwards was a sadomasochist. In other possibly less disreputable tests, though honestly, who knows, Edwards was found to have a low IQ, poor impulse control, and a weird, creepy facade of subservience that apparently belied some pretty awful shit underneath. The facade would serve him remarkably well through his life, even though the pretty awful shit never stayed buried very long. When Edwards was just 17 years old, he joined the Marines. And it's not like 18-year-olds are that much more mature, but 17? In the Marines? Oy vey. Also, I guess no one in the Marines bothered to check if he was mentally fit, because as we've learned, he most definitely was not. 
But here's the craziest part. He was already serving time in juvenile detention for burglary when he enlisted. He escaped juvie, took the test to get into the Marines, was somehow returned to juvie, and the Marines found him in juvie and were like, please give us this clearly upstanding member of society so we can give him an assault weapon. Now that I'm saying that out loud, it makes even less sense. But remember, this info mostly comes from his own autobiography, so take it with a grain of salt or two. But if this creepy child convicted of actual crimes serving his country with deadly weapons worries you, chill. He was dishonorably discharged after a few months for going AWOL and getting arrested again for committing a bunch of burglaries. Semper Fi, indeed. Cut to 1961, when Edwards lands himself on the FBI's most wanted list for continually getting arrested for armed robbery and then breaking out of jail. In 62, when the FBI tracked him down in Atlanta and arrested him, he was sentenced to 16 years, but only served seven after convincing the parole board that he was a changed man because he was a good worker and participated in some study programs. Now, listen, the whole point of prison, they like to remind us, is reform and rehabilitation. Stop laughing. That's what a non-life sentence is supposed to be for. So, you know, job well done, prison. You successfully reformed this shit heap of a human into a good dude. Edward settled back in his hometown of Akron, Ohio again, met a woman named Kay, and fell deeply in love, even though he wrote he was... Terrified that when the time came to tell her of my past, I would lose her, but I decided to cross that bridge when I came to it. Sweetie, you came to that bridge as soon as you realized you were deeply in love with her. Or maybe on your second date. That's when you have to be like, oh yeah, BT dubs, I've been arrested a bunch of times. Edwards must have told her relatively quickly, though, because apparently, shortly after they got married, she was, by the way, his fifth wife. No shade, but, like, shade. His parole officer asked him to speak to students at the University of Akron about his criminal past and about how he was now the very picture of reform. Of course this dude loved talking about himself to a rapt audience and got off on all the questions from the students afterward. He was finally getting the attention and recognition he'd apparently sought and thought he deserved all his life just for existing. Good for him. Then some professor of criminology at the university had such a hard-on for Edwards that he was like, dude, you should totes write a book. So he did, while also touring the country talking about himself at schools, churches, orphanages, police academies, lawyers' organizations, rotary clubs, and various universities. He even came out with a fucking motivational record. Just him talking about how awesome he was or whatever. And he made an appearance on a game show to tell a lie. I repeat, he went on a game show, for Christ's sake. It's worth noting that Edwards ended his autobiography with this gem. Don't be a crime target, be a crime stopper. Protect yourself and your family by taking simple precautions. 
I have known many sex maniacs and am familiar with the way they operate. Instruct your babysitters never to tell anyone who telephones that they are babysitting. Don't tell an unknown caller that the people are not home. If you do, there is a very good chance that someone unwanted will show up at the front door. I'll take victim blaming for a thousand, Alec. How about this? Be a crime stopper. Just fucking don't do crimes. Meanwhile, Edwards and his wife had five children together during this time, and that's where some of the cracks in his redeemed man persona revealed themselves. According to a profile about his daughter April in People magazine in 2018, while he was running around telling people how not to be a victim of crime, he was so verbally and physically abusive toward his wife, he'd put her in the hospital multiple times. This fucking guy. Also, according to April, Edwards regularly uprooted the whole family with no warning, sometimes in the middle of the night. When April was 11, she remembers him waking up the family in the middle of the night, telling them to grab what they could and driving them out of town. Edwards was a handyman and occasional truck driver, and he explained these sudden moves as being for work. Because we all know how hard it is to find a handyman, that if you find one, even across the country, you snatch them up immediately and tell them they have 12 hours to get their asses to Duluth or wherever. In fact, April says Edwards moved them suddenly a lot, like once or twice a year. Another cool and super normal quirk about Edwards was his fascination with death, and the Zodiac Killer in particular. According to the People magazine article in which April was referred to by her married name, Belasquio, quote, He often made the kids watch videos about the infamous Zodiac Killer who terrorized Northern California from the 1960s through 1970 by murdering at least five known victims while claiming to have killed 37. Belasquio remembers her father screaming at the screen, That's not how it happened! Whether it was because he felt he was an expert on the murders or because he had personal knowledge of them, she didn't know. I always had my suspicion, she said. You grow up and you realize this is not normal. End quote. And you thought your parents were weird. Eventually, April was finally like, not today, Bob. And she did some digging into her father's past. What she found was a very different picture from what he'd presented to the world for some four decades. In 2009, following a hunch, April started looking into cold cases from cities and towns and places where her father had moved the family without warning during her childhood. When she looked up cold cases in Watertown, Wisconsin, she stumbled upon the Sweetheart murders. In 1980, 19-year-olds Kelly Drew and Timothy Hack both went missing during a wedding reception in Watertown at a venue where April's dad, Edward Wayne Edwards, had been working as a handyman. Drew and Hack's bodies were found more than two months later in a cornfield, having been stabbed to death. The night after Drew and Hack went missing, Edwards uprooted his family in the middle of the night and fled the state. Based on that, April called Detective Chad Garcia, who found Edwards living in Louisville, Kentucky, and wouldn't you know, his DNA was a 100% match with DNA discovered on Drew and Hack. 
And then, while he was in custody and without prompting, Edwards, who was now 75, opened up like a lotus blossom and let forth a small torrent of confessions to additional murders. Edwards told police that in 1977, he'd brutally killed 21-year-old Billy Lavaco and 18-year-old Judy Straub in Ohio. I say brutally killed as though there were some other way to murder someone. A month after confessing to those murders in March of 2011, Edwards added to his alleged body count list when he confessed to murdering his son, Danny Boy Edwards, seven years earlier. And I hear you being like, he murdered his own son? Sorta kinda. Edwards had adopted Danny Boy when Danny Boy was in his 20s, got him to legally change his name to Danny Boy, got him to go AWOL from the military, following in dear old dad's footsteps, took a life insurance policy out on him, killed him, and then cashed in the policy. And then, in Edward's own words, I spent the money. I was having a good time. You do it, forget it was done, and go about your business until next time. Nice parenting. Now, you may be wondering why in the world he kept confessing to murders after he'd already received life in prison for the Drew Hack murders. It certainly wasn't that his conscience was weighing on him. You'd be hard-pressed to locate this guy's conscience anyway. It was tucked deep away somewhere next to his humanity. Edwards kept confessing to more murders because he was the definition of a narcissist. Merely rotting away in a prison cell for the rest of his miserable existence wasn't going to be good enough. He wanted the notoriety that comes with being a serial killer. Just a regular killer isn't noteworthy enough. He wanted to be put to death. And it worked. He got sentenced to death by lethal injection. I guess he figured that was how people would remember him? The worst part is, he was right. Because here we are remembering him. Ultimately, Edwards ended up dying of natural causes before he got the chance to be lethally injected only about a month after confessing to the murder of Danny Boy. And honestly, he might have faded into relative obscurity if it hadn't been for one dude who got a real bug up his butt and couldn't let sleeping dogs or gross sacks of human shit like Edward Wayne Edwards lie. You know when you're watching a movie that you're sure is almost over, but somehow three hours in, they're suddenly introducing some new character and you're like, who's this fucking guy? Enter homicide detective John Cameron, not to be confused with the legendary actor, singer, and writer John Cameron Mitchell, who totally tangentially was the first man I had a crush on IRL, only to realize he was gay. And if you're like, how did you not know John Cameron Mitchell was gay? It's kind of his brand. Back off. I was only 11 years old. Anyway. Detective John Cameron's ears first perked up in 2010 when Edwards confessed to the 1980 sweetheart murders back in Wisconsin and the 1977 murder of Billy Lavaco and Judy Straub. Cameron thought these two double homicides sounded a lot like an unsolved case from 1956, in which two teens out canoodling on Lover's Lane in Great Falls, Montana, were murdered. Cameron pulled Edwards' rap sheet, and wouldn't you know it, Edwards had been arrested and spent some time in jail in Billings, Montana in, you guessed it, 
1956. Totes excited about this potential discovery, Cameron brought his hunch to the rest of the police team in Great Falls, and much to his chagrin, apparently they were like, meh, no thanks. But Cameron would not be deterred, and so he quit his job with the police department and dedicated himself to investigating Edwards. Misguided or not, I admire how he made such a huge decision in what seems like less time than I take to consider Vietnamese or Thai for dinner. Through his investigation, Cameron figured out that Edward's book, Metamorphosis of a Criminal, was actually one big puzzle designed to lead only the best puzzle solver, who I guess is Cameron, to solve all its clues. And solve them he did. In all, Cameron believes Edwards killed almost 100 people, starting when he was about 13 years old, by the way, which would make him the most prolific serial killer of all time. Let's go over his biggest hits, shall we? According to Cameron, Edwards killed Jean Benet Ramsey, Lacey Peterson, Teresa Halbach of Making a Murderer, Adam Walsh, son of America's Most Wanted's John Walsh, Chandra Levy, Jimmy Hoffa, Martha Moxley, Steve Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers of the West Memphis Three case, and the Black Dahlia. In addition to all these people who, need I point out, all died in very different ways, which is not usually how serial killers work, Cameron believed that Edwards was the Atlanta child killer and the Zodiac killer. So, naturally, Cameron wrote a book about Edwards called It's Me, Edward Wayne Edwards, The Serial Killer You Never Heard Of, self-published in 2014. Because if you can't prove your wild theories outright, you might as well make a bunch of money off of them. In an interview for Rolling Stone, Cameron said, His book was a blueprint for all the killing he had done and all the cities that he had killed in. That's really what the book was. It was the Zodiac Killer taunting everybody with who he really was to see if somebody would follow his trail. In another interview for Today, Cameron said, There were two cryptograms sent in by the Zodiac Killer, one in 69 and one in 70, and he basically said, If you solve these puzzles, then you'll have my name. And in 2010, when we confronted Ed Edwards about being the Zodiac Killer after we solved the 13-character cipher, Edward Edwards' name is 13 characters, and what he had done was taken the letters in his name and reverse imaged the letters as hieroglyphics, so you could never solve the Zodiac case without knowing the name Edward Edwards. But journalist Amelia McDonald Perry isn't convinced. In her 2018 article in Rolling Stone, she pointed out a lot of Cameron's faulty evidence. For example, on It Was Him, Cameron goes on and on about the craftsmanship of the Black executioner's hood the Zodiac wore during his third attack. Cameron describes the hood as being made of leather with intricate stitching around the cross symbol on its front. While in prison, Edwards was trained in leatherwork. Ergo, Ed Edwards must have made the ornate leather hood, Cameron concludes. Except there's no evidence that the Zodiac's hood was made of leather. The costume was never found, 
and the only description on record did not indicate what kind of material it was fashioned out of. A sketch artist's official rendering doesn't include any of the decorative details that Cameron seems to have imagined. She also noted that the Zodiac Killer's crimes had no sadosexual elements, while Edwards raped at least one of his victims. On the Today Show, Cameron said that once he figured out that Edwards was the Zodiac Killer, he confronted Edwards, who... Sent us a letter saying, it's me. You don't know the whole story. I have a lot to tell you. And that he framed people his whole life. That's what he wanted me to know at the very beginning. That's what he wanted me to know. That he intended to frame somebody. Cameron thinks the person who sent the letter to the Modesto Bee in 2003 claiming responsibility for killing Lacey Peterson and framing her shitbag husband Scott was Edwards because the word me in the letter was placed in parentheses. And if you turn the M sideways, it becomes an E, making the initials EE. Don't try to wrap your head around it. I promise you'll need a nap afterward. Cameron said that Edwards knew he could frame Scott Peterson for the murder because Scott was cheating on Lacey and people would buy that he was driven to murder because of that. But Megyn Kelly on the Today Show was like, hold on, bro. How did Edwards know Scott was cheating on Lacey? That all came out later. Want to know how Cameron explains this? You ready? He was actually a doctor of psychiatry throughout his life, having offices where he would be under an assumed identity, rope his victims into the office, get personal information out of them, and then figure out, sometimes years in advance, how am I going to frame them? This dude, who had no college degree, was secretly a doctor of psychiatry, who, according to Cameron, would lure in patients under an assumed identity and work with them, sometimes for years, figuring out, I guess, the best time and method of killing them? And where is the record of this supposed therapy-slash-victim-trapping practice this guy was running? There is none. All of which makes even less sense if you decide to believe Cameron's theory that Edwards killed the Black Dahlia when he was only 13, which wasn't even his first murder, by the way, because, according to Cameron, he also killed and dismembered a six-year-old girl the year before that, when he would have been, wait for it, 12 years old. If he was able to murder those two people as a child and get away scot-free, why in the world would he go to the trouble of pretending to be a psychiatrist to spend years figuring out a way to kill people? If this were the case, clearly he knew not only how to kill people, but how to get away with it. Cameron says that Edwards' real victims were the people he framed for the murders, which, again, makes no sense, seeing as how the majority of the murders Cameron links to Edwards were never solved. And P.S., it seems to me his real victims were his victims, the actual dead people, you know? And the people Cameron thinks Edwards did successfully frame, like Scott Peterson or Stephen Avery, the man convicted of the 2005 murder of Teresa Halbach, documented in Making a Murderer, still have huge question marks over their cases. 
Even Stephen Avery's lawyer, who would have every motivation to try to pin the murder on anyone other than Avery, told Rolling Stone magazine, Edwards would not have had the opportunity to kill Teresa Hallback. She would not have pulled over for him. He did not have her schedule that day to know where she would be at a particular time. Edwards did not have access to or familiarity with the Avery property to plant the evidence. At age 72, he was too old and infirm to have committed this crime. The Edwards theory is a convenient, wishful-thinking placebo, and not the hard, cold reality of actually performing the painstaking work necessary to solve a murder. Another firm detractor from Cameron's Michigas theory that Edward Edwards basically killed everyone in the history of time is Edward's own daughter, April Belasquio. Edwards loved talking about himself. This we know. And he desperately needed recognition and attention. April believes Cameron was just another sucker willing to buy his bullshit. And when I say that Cameron bought Edwards' bullshit, please understand that Cameron was paying Edwards for information. According to April, anyway. She alleged that Cameron continually sent Edwards money, and in exchange, Edwards was like, oh yeah, here's some super yummy breadcrumbs. Fortunately, or unfortunately, I guess, depending on who you ask, Edwards died before coughing up the truth about all those people Cameron definitely thinks he killed. Ironically, that would make Cameron Edwards' final victim. Ouch. None of this would matter if it weren't for the fact that Cameron's wild accusations are actually getting in the way of solving cold cases. Chad Garcia, the detective April initially reached out to when she suspected her father of killing Timothy Hack and Kelly Drew, believes that Edwards genuinely may have been responsible for up to seven more murders that remain cold. One case that Garcia believes Cameron is right about is a double homicide in Portland, Oregon in 1960, to which Garcia believes there is hard evidence linking Edwards. But because of how discredible Cameron has made himself with all the facocta reaching for connections that don't exist, no one wants to touch the case anymore. In Cameron's defense, I guess it's hard to back down once you've gone too far down a rabbit hole, you know? Like, it probably would have been too much on Cameron's ego to suddenly be like, you know, I think I'm barking up the wrong tree here. It may be that Edward Wayne Edwards and John Cameron have something in common. They both need attention. One of them chose killing people to get his. The other just kind of piggybacked off that like some annoying co-worker on Zoom and rode a murderer's coattails, hoping for his own notoriety and recognition, which, unfortunately, he's getting. Because here I am, talking about him. And so, it seems, are enough people that it keeps his story in the spotlight. So it seems narcissism can rear its ugly head in more ways than one, but while crass manipulation of facts and blatant media baiting is reprehensible to be sure, what could be more malignant than the evil of cold, random, widespread murder? Who knows how many lives Edwards took during his wayward journey out here in the world? What we do know is any number would be too much for the inconsequential purpose of making a name for himself 
or for any purpose, really. But especially if the name he made for himself was Edward Edwards, an embarrassing one to take to the grave, if you ask me. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, was it a top-secret U.S. Navy experiment gone wrong, or a hoax cooked up by someone with an overactive imagination? Either way, the Philadelphia experiment inspired two Hollywood movies and generations of conspiracy theorists. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca Gregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and researched by Jess McKillop. Our audio editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Ryan Garcia, Luther Creek, Lauren Hooper, and Andrea Jones-Sojola. Our social channels are run and managed by Amy Sapp. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. If you like our show, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. 